Welcome back to the God Story podcast, exploring the big picture of the Bible to bring us back to God. I'm Brent Siddle, and I'm joined once again by Rido, the Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church in Palmerston North, New Zealand. Ian, welcome. Hi, how are you, Brent? I'm good, thank you. We're exploring Hebrews, and we're up to chapter 8 in a podcast we've entitled A Better Temple and a Better Covenant. Now, Ian, uh, what did we see last time in Hebrews chapter 7? So in chapter 7, we were looking at Jesus being a better priest. And so we talked a little bit about the Levitical priesthood. We talked about how uh, the book of Hebrews talks, uh, kind of makes this link between the character in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, uh, who's a sort of interesting character and he pops up once in the Old Testament, but how Jesus is in his line and he's a priest in his line and a better priest than the other priests that follow. Well, why, why is Jesus a better high priest than all those Levitical priests or indeed a better priest than Melchizedek? Because he's one that uh, kind of can offer sacrifices or a sacrifice once, once and for all uh, that they don't have to sacrifice over and over again like the other priests. He's one that's sinless as well. He d- doesn't sin. And so he's not sacrificing for himself, but he's doing once and for all. And the sacrifice that he makes isn't one that won't really cover our sin, uh, but one that will actually do that. Well, we uh, listened a few weeks ago to a podcast where one of our guests, Lewis Marcos, was talking about how Plato, uh, some of Plato is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I couldn't help but be struck as I came to research Hebrews chapter 8, that Plato's theory of the forms might come into play here a little bit. What What do you reckon? I haven't, I haven't done much research on whether the writer of Hebrews or not uh, kind of has that in the back of their mind, but it, it does seem to be kind of, a, a, kind of a, an intersection there, doesn't it? And so this whole idea of uh, the Plato's theory of the forms is that somewhere out in the kind of out in the world somewhere, not on this world, but in another world, there are the, these perfect forms of the objects that we have in this life. So out there is the, the perfect dog and we just have forms of that perfect dog. I don't have a dog and I'm not going to get one, but I'm sure most pet owners would say that their dog is probably the, the perfect dog. Uh, but it's that idea that out there is this, the perfect chair or whatever it is, and we just have forms of that perfect chair. Mm. So, yes, and how does Hebrews 8 present us with this ideal or perfect temple and ideal or perfect covenant? So there's these two ideas coming through in this chapter, that they're the temple on earth was just a kind of form of the real temple that's in heaven. Uh, And it's just an image, you might say, or kind of a shadow is another way of understanding it. And the same with the covenants that we receive uh, in the the Bible, that that there uh, is another covenant that that Jesus is going to make in fulfilling all of those other covenants and bringing everything together and making a new covenant. Mm. Well, let's start to read it. Verses 1 to 2 of Hebrews chapter 8. I'll read. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent. There's our ideal tabernacle or temple. In the true tent or tabernacle, uh, from the Greek, that the Lord set up, not man. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So what is the Lord Jesus Christ currently doing, Rito? I don't have a kind of a telescope into heaven, so I'm not 
quite sure right this moment, but the idea is that he is still interceding. He's still our mediator. But look at what it says there in verse 1, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. So he's still ministering there. He's still doing his job of being a ruler, but being a priest and a mediator for us. Yeah, and seated at the right hand, the right hand of power, uh, also meaning that presumably that he's completed his his great uh, substitutionary sacrifice for us. Yeah, the kind of idea of he's sitting rather than serving, and the if you were a Levite priest, you you kind of it was a lot of standing. That's all you did all day was that you're walking around, offering sacrifices, doing all of these other things. But here, the priest is sitting down, and you you wouldn't expect that, would you, from a priest if it's a kind of taxing job of standing and serving and doing all these other things. He's sitting because it's, it has been done. Yeah, so in what sense does our great high priest Jesus serve in a true tabernacle or a true temple? So the one in heaven is the real temple and being it, it, not necessarily a physical kind of thing, but it's the idea of being in God's presence uh, with God himself. Uh, and so the image we have on earth was just a reflection or a shadow of what it looks like to be in God's presence and his holiness. Mm. Well, what was the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament system? Yeah, so the the temple is it's kind of a physical intermediary place, kind of like a priest is, kind of it acts as, a, as an intermediary between the two parties. But the temple is kind of God's space on earth. That's how I like to think about it, is that it's like a little embassy on, on earth of, of kind of God's space. And so you have this embassy where you go and meet God, you kind of, and when you enter into that place, you know, if it's a holy kind of place and there's, there's people serving, uh, and it's kind of like a foreign kind of land when you go in there. Uh, but the, the tabernacle itself was a place where the sacrifices were made. In what sense then is Jesus our true temple or true tabernacle? This is where we need to get our theology right and and I think it's quite important is that Jesus being both fully man and fully God he's like that embassy he's like that that temple that comes he's he's God's space on earth and so if we think that Jesus oh yeah he's kind of man kind of God it doesn't quite get us there it doesn't quite work he has to be fully God and fully man for it to work and in sense in, in terms of the tabernacle he is the place where the sacrifice takes place Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, how and why are we told that the heavenly temple is a place of offering? I wouldn't have thought of heaven as a place of offering, Rito. Well, what's being offered is the question, isn't it? And is it worship? Quite possibly. Uh, is it, it? It's not necessarily probably physical things, uh, but... I think it's, in, in some sense it's everything you kind of being offered in worship of God. And so whatever we have, whatever all of creation kind of is, it's all offering itself in worship. Mm. Why is the heavenly temple a place of reconciliation there? Sorry, which verse are you looking at? Uh, I'm looking at verse 3. He's offering gifts and sacrifices. Oh, yep. Yeah, so he's... Well, I guess that, that's the only place to offer them, isn't it? Is that the... If it's only offered on earth, it's not going to work. It has to be offered in in the heavenly realms. Mm. Verses 4 and 5, we read on. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. There's our platonic thinking, maybe. Mm. I don't know. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern 
that was shown you on the mountain. Well, why then couldn't Jesus have offered sacrifices at the earthly temple? He wouldn't have been allowed in. And so there were specific places uh, that the priests could go, and Jesus wasn't allowed in because he wasn't a Levite. He wasn't in the the tribe of Levi. He was in the tribe of Judah. And so he wouldn't be allowed in, firstly. Uh, and so... and. Secondly, it wouldn't have done anything. It would be pointless for him to do to do that. In what sense was the earthly temple then a copy and a shadow of heavenly things? What does the writer mean? Well, it's kind of an image of the true thing. I think that, that's kind of what's being said. So you have the, a copy, not in the sense of it's a photograph uh, or like a photocopy of something, but that it's an image of a, of a higher spiritual reality. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is, as, that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. So what does verse 6 tell us about this better covenant then? Well, because Jesus is able to fulfill the old covenant, and the old covenant that, that it's talking about there is the law, because he's able to live in relationship with God the whole time. He's obedient to the law his entire life. He fulfills that. He doesn't abolish it, but he fulfills that. And because he does, uh, he's, there is a new covenant that kind of kind of flows out of that. And it's one of grace, where, where the one before was about our, our obedience and our performance. This one is about grace, and it's about acceptance and relationship. How is Jesus' priesthood then better than the old covenant priesthood? We talked a bit about this last time. Well, the old covenant priesthood could never keep us in relationship with, with God full time. It, it could kind of pay some of the way. That, that's what it kind of seems like. It kind of uh, acts as a kind of a, a, a space where uh, it can kind of get us there, but it can't ever give, get us there once and for all, where Jesus does get us once and for all. He, when he dies and when he is resurrected, it's a sign that, yes, this is the sacrifice uh, that, that we needed the whole time. And, and really the Levitical priesthood is just pointing us to his sacrifice. Mm. How, how will the tabernacle and the temple types or pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ? How does he fulfill them? Well, in the temple, we've, we've already seen, you know, he's the, the place where the, um, the sacrifice takes place, but he's also the, in the sense of being the, the two uh, kind of things, the divine and the human kind of joining together. Uh, and you get that really in John 1, the, the idea that Jesus kind of comes and dwells with us. You know, he, He's the, the place where God dwells, and you have that in the temple, then the whole, the most holy place that he, he, that God kind of comes and dwells in, in, in his temple. You get that with Jesus, and particularly John 1 really picks up on that idea, which is really beautiful. But the idea that the tabernacle, the place where the sacrifices are made, uh, is another kind of thing that that is drawn out in Jesus, that he is that sacrifice. You've got all these things going on in Hebrews. You've got Jesus being the priest offering the sacrifice. You've got Jesus being the temple where the sacrifice is offered and the tabernacle on, you know, kind of where the sacrifice is offered and then the, he's the sacrifice himself. Yeah, it's quite a complex woven symbolism, isn't it? Yeah. Verses 7 to 13, I wonder what these teach us about the better covenant. Let's have a read. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault 
with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Mm, fascinating, Ian. So what, is, what do these verses teach us about the better or new covenant then? Well, this is, a, this is a prophecy from Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is looking forward to Jesus' day, looking forward to the, uh, the new covenant that uh, Jesus is bringing in. And the, the kind of the, the thing that Jesus is kind of able to do is bring in a new covenant, not necessarily abolish the old covenant, but bring in a new one and where the, all of the failings of the old one are done away with. Yes, I, I always find this complex. Is the old covenant actually replaced by the new? No, it's fulfilled. And this is a, an important kind of point, isn't it? That Jesus comes and fulfills uh, the covenant, but he doesn't, and even then it's not abolished. He just sets it, puts it in its right place. Some people talk about it as the, the kind of the moon and the sun. So the moon, it gives a light, uh, but it's only a reflection of the true light that's coming. And so the law is kind of like that. It's like the moon. It, it shows us a, as a reflection of something else out there, which is the sun. And when the sun comes, you kind of, the, the moon moves to the background. It's not like it goes away, but it moves to the background and the sun kind of shines, shines forth its own light. Mm. So what does the new covenant do then that the old covenant couldn't do? Take us all the way in. <laughs> it's a big thing, isn't it? Uh, the, it, it and the, the, the old covenant, it's not bad. It's actually good because it shows us that we couldn't go all the way in by our own efforts. And that, that's the whole point of, of really the, the whole Old Testament, but particularly the, the law, is that it shows us that we can't go all the way in because our sin can never be dealt with by ourselves. What's a covenant anyway? That's a good question. We don't really use that word it, it, anymore, No, it's, it's a word that I think most of, most of us in church today find a bit funny. Oh, funny, that's the wrong word. We struggle with this idea of covenant. What was the old co- Well, I thought there were a whole lot of covenants in the, in the old covenant or the uh, carried forward in, in, under that term, shall we say? Yeah, there are there are quite a few covenants in the Old Testament. So there's one with Noah. Uh, there's one with uh, Abraham. Uh, there's the Mosaic one, which is the law, and then there's one with David. Whether there's one with Adam or not, that's another kind of question. Uh, it depends if you're into covenant theology or not. Uh, but the whole idea is that God is saying, "I'm going to be your God." You are going to be my people. I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to redeem the world. Now, the one with the law is different to the other ones because the other ones, God just says, this is what I'm going to do, and there's no if or but or anything like this, or this is what you need to do. But when you get to the one with the law at Mount Sinai with Moses, it's quite clear in saying, I am your God. This is how you live in relationship with me. So there are kind of rules and regulations about how you live. But the, the idea of the covenant is, is it a promise. This is what I'm going to do for you. 
you know, it's kind of similar similar to a contract, but it's kind of bigger than that in some sense that it encompasses someone's whole life, really. Yeah, I was going to say, in modern terms, we think it, it sounds very close to some sort of legal agreement between two parties. Often we can talk about it like a marriage covenant almost. That, that, that I think, is probably a helpful example, that it's not just something about an exchange of property or anything like that, but it's about someone's whole life kind of coming into this and, and making a promise that you will fulfil it that way. Is the law then still of any use to us today, Rito? This is a really good question, and I think it's a, it's a good question because it can be easy as Christians to throw out the law thinking it is of no use when we understand grace fully. But it's like the sun and moon again. We need to put the sun as the centre, which is God's grace, and, and see that the moon, kind of the, the law, still has its place, but it's not the place that we think it is. It's a place of kind of understanding how God asks us to live in relationship with him. But we need to see it's not the, the way that we get into relationship with God, but it's how we respond to a relationship with God. How does the new covenant then bring about lasting reconciliation between God and humanity? Well, if Jesus has brought us into relationship with the Father, then that can't be undone. And that's his covenant with us, that, that this is what I have done for you. I have brought you into relationship, given you my spirit, and therefore you will be in relationship forever. And there's nothing you can do to get out of that. It's, I mean, so, it's, I know, it's so freeing for me that you know, kind of, it's such a free thing to, to, to kind of, I don't actually have to be kind of thinking about my performance. I don't need to worry about that. But you know what that actually leads to? It leads to better performance. You kind of when I'm when I'm not worried about how I'm being obedient actually leads to more obedience in a way. Why does the writer use Jeremiah chapter thirty-one there? So Jeremiah thirty-one's a key biblical theological passage, isn't it, in Scripture? Jeremiah looks forward uh, in hope. You know, he's kind of writing during the exile, uh, and he's looking forward to a point where something's going to change. God is going to come and actually do something because Israel up to that point, it's just it's, it's a microcosm of what all humanity does. They try to get into relationship with God by what they're doing, but they can never get there and then they just keep falling away and they get further and further away from God. And this is a huge disappointment. But Jeremiah is looking forward and say, that is not going to be the end of humanity. God is going to come and do something. And he looks forward to that point and where God does do something. Yeah, how, how is the law internalised or written on our hearts in the New Covenant? It's interesting that when Jeremiah looks forward, he doesn't just dismiss the law, does he? He actually says, no, this is something that is going to go inside of you. But do you notice that it's inside of you rather than against you? And I think that's the important point, is that in the Old Testament in particular, the law uh, is against us because it stands over us because we can't fulfil it. But what it's saying here is that because you have come into relationship with you, with, with God, uh, the Father in particular, the, the law comes and lives in us by the Spirit in the sense of it reshapes our hearts, it reshapes our desires. Now, that doesn't happen overnight. It takes a very long time for that to, to kind of work its way out. But it's a beautiful thing that's going on in that our desires are so changed that we're not trying to obey God to get something out of him, but we obey him because of what he's done to us and in us. Yeah, so how does Jesus then fulfill the law? Well, what is the law? The law is really an expression of who God is himself, of what it looks like to be in relationship with him. And Jesus leaves every aspect that, of that out in 
his whole life, something that we can never do. Mm. Why is the new covenant based on grace? Because if it was based on the law, we'd just be going around and around and around, wouldn't, wouldn't we? It's what we need. And, and when you understand, when you have a good, what's called biblical theology, which is understanding how God's plan of salvation works from the beginning to the end, you see grace all through the Bible, and you just can't help but see it. You even see it in Genesis 3, just after uh, they've sinned, God promises uh, that there's one who's going to come, who's a, the son of Eve, who's going to come and crush the head of the, of the serpent. But then what does God do after he's punished them and sent them out of the garden? He, he makes clothes for them. You see, you see grace all the way through, and it's just on every page. You see what God is actually doing is not trying to get people out of relationship with him. He's trying to get people into relationship with him, but he has to defeat sin to get there. Yeah, and so verse 13, uh, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In what sense is the old covenant then for us obsolete? It's obsolete in the sense of we don't need need it to get into relationship. And I think it's vanishing away in the sense of we will never have to look at it again, you know, kind of in time, in the new creation, is that it will be so entwined in terms of our hearts are being reshaped that it'll just be, that is who we are. We are God's people. We live in the way that he wants us to live. Yeah, well, the, the writer is writing to these Jewish Christians. And what's he trying to show them then? This is obviously going to be a very, very powerful and probably shocking argument, perhaps, to these Jewish folk. What, what is he trying to... What, what point is he trying to make? You don't need the law, obedience to the law, to have salvation. You don't need obedience to get into relationship with God. And that, that is shocking. You know, it's shocking to every human being. It's not only the law that's written in terms of the, the Mosaic law, but it's the law that we all have on our hearts and written deeply in us that we need to perform for God to accept us. Yeah, and we live all of our lives that live like that, whether whether it's with a, a loved one or kind of in a relationship at work. We, we think we need to perform for people to, to like us or to, uh, to kind of love us. And we, we kind of transpose that onto what God is like. And it's very dangerous, but we all do it. Every, every single human being does it. But it's offensive to us as well that you do not need to perform to get into relationship. And I think that's the biggest offense of the gospel, that it is free and it's, it's full of grace. Yeah, what's, what purpose then does the law have for Christians today? Does it, does it serve any purpose for us? I think it does in the sense of it helps us, particularly in terms of uh, the moral, what we call the moral law. Uh, that So not so much the cultic law, which is the sacrifices and things like that, although they can be helpful for understanding what God was going to do. Uh, and the, what we might call the civic law, which was how people kind of structured their lives. It's not that those things are necessarily obsolete, but... We, we don't need to think of them in the same way, but I think the, the moral law definitely is, and that's where uh, God is kind of showing us who, what he's like, and I think that's, you know, he doesn't change, so why should the law kind of change in that way? But we don't need it to have a relationship with God, but it shows us what it looks like to be in relationship with God. By the moral law, do you mean just the Ten Commandments? No, I think it's more than that. I, you know, I, I don't remember the, the exact distinction, but the Ten Commandments is a good framework to start with, yeah. Mm, okay. So why then should we put our trust in Jesus and not in our own performance or indeed our works? Because we can't get ourselves there. <laughs> That's what the whole the Old Testament is about, isn't it? Mm. And if you read the Old Testament rightly, you just see it over and over again that Israel, Israel is a microcosm of 
what humanity's like. Mm. Okay, uh, Rita, well, that, that's chapter eight. But in closing, we need to, to talk about the theme of grace, which has been a theme that's come up right throughout these Hebrews podcasts. Why for you as a pastor and for pastors listening to this podcast, why is it so important to teach grace? Because if we ever move on from that, we move on from the gospel. It's as simple as, it's as, simple as that. And you, know, you, you end up losing everything that you have by, by moving on from grace. And grace not only gets us in, it, it must guide every single bit of who we are. And this is what I see a lot of churches doing. They think you get in by grace, but you kind of have to stay in by doing lots of law, you know, lots of other things. And it's a big problem. You know, it's a big issue of, of churches, how they function, of how they try and get people to, to live, and it's just wrong. And how, how do, what's, what are some of the problems, the pastoral problems that arise from... Uh, from teaching law and not grace? One of the big, I think there's a couple of big things. One is assurance. Assurance is a huge issue uh, that you're just unsure of, of your salvation. Uh, but one of the other big issues is how you motivate people to a changed life. Uh, is, very, is, is you use fear, you use guilt and things like that rather than love and, and grace that, that, you kind of, that flows out of knowing Jesus rather than getting into relationship. Okay, so I'm a pastor or a, a teacher from a church listening to this podcast. H- how do I know that I'm operating out of grace and not out of fear or power or control or putting law on people? Do you use guilt is one of the big things I find, uh, that people use guilt as a way to motivate people or fear, uh, that you know, kind of warning people all the time that, that maybe they're not really saved or things like that, rather than helping people to see that it's out of love that we change. It's out of love that we are obedient. And last time we, we started this discussion on prosperity gospel, which fits in again with this theme, I think, of, of law. Uh, God wants to make you rich is what we're often told from the, from the front of the, the church, from our pulpits. Uh, how does that sort of approach lead to our works and, and indeed a performance a legalism? Well, what it does is it says it puts all of the, the onus on me that if I just have more faith or just maybe even you know, sow a seed of, of whatever you know, kind of money or whatever it is. So what I end up doing is I'm trying to get something out of God or get something out of other people. And it's just a huge danger, isn't it, that it does not lead to grace. It does not lead to loving other people for who they are. It leads, leads me to using other people for what I can get out of them. Yes, and it's a very strange theology because the if I've understood it correctly, it works like this. So I have to have the faith to speak a word and to speak a word to bring riches into my life or to bring something about, which is almost new age, isn't it? It's kind of putting the onus on me mm. uh, and, and saying to people, you have the power to use your words to basically change your life. Uh, to bring things into being. And that can be a very callous thing to say to folk who are often in situations, pastoral situations, that they have little or no control over. And so what you end up having to say is things like, you caused someone's sickness or you yeah. caused yeah. Uh, someone to pass away. Mm. And that, that's just an awful, one, it's just an awful thing to say to people. That's just not true. You know, kind of, and it's just, it's just wrong to kind of put that on people. And secondly, it, it leads you to be full of pride as well, that when I do succeed or when I do, you know, whatever it is, that it's, yes, I do have this faith or I do have this, you know, God has blessed me because of all these things. And that's just, 
That's one, it's just wrong. Uh, but but two, it just leads to leads to pride rather than humility. Yeah, one of the things that's concerned me over the years is is uh, folks saying to people, I don't know, with uh, serious illness, cancer. Uh, in the case I'm thinking of, uh, where someone said to this person, uh, you're sick, e.g. you have cancer because you don't have the faith to get rid of it. In other words, the assumption is that this person can just kind of magic up a response from God to heal the sickness. Now, And that just makes me angry. Yeah, it makes me angry too because it, it's just wrong and it's ca- it is callous. Isn't it? And it's just painful in terms of people. And it totally misunderstands what God is doing in this world, that he is able to use those things which are not good for his good. Uh, and out of those things which are not good, he brings beautiful things, you know, kind of refining faith, He even stirring faith in people up that, that may never have thought um, kind of that they would think about God, that, that often those things come into their lives and it's an opportunity for them to uh, kind of, hear about the gospel and to to uh, believe there, there seems no theology there seems to be no theology of suffering or place for suffering in the prosperity doctrine but there isn't any i don't think suffering you know kind of just the idea of suffering is become so foreign not only in that kind of sense but in a whole world that uh the whether it's god needs to save me from suffering or the government needs to save me from suffering or whatever it is that we're not allowed to suffer and that suffering in itself is an evil where when you look through history and not only christian history but but a lot a lot of history that there has been kind of a lot of fruit born out of suffering uh, and that i think we've lost that that kind of that idea is it john piper's book uh kind of talking about suffering that then he says the kind of um the gift that nobody wants, but it is a gift. You do have to see it as yeah, a gift. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that, that's not in a heartless way that we should invite suffering in, into our lives. It's not, we're not talking about that, but when it does come into our lives, it's about experiencing it correctly and understanding what God has been doing to us. Well, let's come on and explore the theme of suffering as we carry on through these podcasts. But uh, time is up. So Ian Reid, the Reverend Ian Reid Rido of King's Grace Presbyterian Church in Palmerston, thank you once again for your time, brother. Wonderful. And uh, next time in the next podcast, we'll be coming on to look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. So thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. Godstory Podcast.